This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. My guest today is a comedian, novelist, playwright, podcaster, memoirist, and presenter. You could call him a multi-hyphenate, although there are so many hyphens, he might as well just be one long straight line. Russell Kane grew up in Essex, studied English at Middlesex University, and after graduation became a copywriter. His father, David, was a metal worker who, according to Kane, was bullying and aggressive. His dad died in 2004 and Kane did his first stand-up comedy gig shortly afterwards. He has made no secret of the fact he believes the two to be connected. And his career since then has been impressive. Kane won Best Show at the 2010 Edinburgh Comedy Awards and went on to perform sell-out gigs across the globe. Zadie Smith is a fan. She once gave him a rave review in The New Yorker. On TV, his work includes Live at the Apollo and Celebrity Juice, and he has two brilliant podcasts, Evil Genius and Man Baggage. Art should be truth, Kane says. And the only thing I've found to be consistently funny is telling the truth to a horrific and cringing degree. Russell Kane, welcome to How to Fail. Oh, that's the bit I was dreading out of the way, to be honest. <laughs> I'm, I'm a massive fan of the podcast. And what happens is, I know you're being lovely, but most of your guests crumble at the loveliness of the intro and they don't seem to recover. <laughs> well, it's I'm done. a massive it's, it's fan done of now. you. It's done. I was a little bit doing la 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 with my fingers in my ears a little bit. <laughs> it's actually really intimidating writing an introduction to someone who is so multifaceted, has so many talents and is extremely funny. So yeah, no, if anyone should be nervous, it was me. And I'm so glad you're on this podcast, partly because I know you have just moved house and I can't imagine anything more stressful than to have moved house and have dust sheets everywhere and to be doing a podcast about your failures today. So thank you. I mean, if only I'd have put in moving house as one of the failures. 
So my other half, Lindsay, was in charge of the logistics of the moving. So I'm currently looking for a, a suitable space in the garden to bury the corpse. <laughs> Now, I ended on that amazing quote about your compulsion to tell the truth. Where do you think that comes from? Have you always had it? Being brutally honest, which I'm good at, I think it was more a sort of Darwinian process of finding out what worked for me on stage, really. In the beginning, there was plenty of trying purely observed things or purely jokey things or writing purely observed things, purely jokey things. They just didn't work as well as the truth. And even changing a name when I was on, there was no reason for me to say Dave on stage for my dad. I could have called him anything, Gary. Gary's probably a funnier name. But it was like the words died in my mouth. There's some sort of polygraph in my tongue that kills the sound as it comes out. And it just doesn't punch to the back of the room with the same degree as when I use real names, real stories, real beats. Don't get me wrong, I will overperform and embellish the performance and the speaking of the words of the other actors in those scenes. But it, there's something about truth which sort of turbocharges the observation as it flies out of my gob. It sounds like you feel that there can be no connection almost with an audience or maybe on a one-on-one -on -one level unless there's truth first. Possibly. For me, I have to be quite clear, I've got this theory about comedy that there's two types of comedian, a type one and a type two. And the type one comedians will be remembered forever and write brilliant routines that we quote and we say things like garlic bread or, or we quote Bill Hicks or Richard Pryor or something or Hannah Gadsby and we'll still be quoting them in 100 years. Then you've got the ones like me <laughs> who will disappear in a cloud after death. But we're very, very easy at being funny at being ourselves. So I have a much easier time of it creating a show. If you and I were at the side of the stage moaning about a sandwich, I would probably go on and talk about that sandwich for five minutes to the audience and make it funny. That's the positive. I've just monetized my personality. So because that is my business model, truth is the best way to monetize that. <laughs> Do you really think you're going to disappear in a cloud? I just think if you're a type two comic, you're less likely to have spent hours and hours in, a, I'm, a, I'm a massive literature fan, in a sort of a flow bear way, down your shed, screaming in a hut in Croissant outside um, Rouen, trying to find the perfect image as flow bear did. I remember there's an image in Madame Bovary where she passes out and it says that her eyes were like cornflowers rolling in milk. I mean, apparently it took him a week to come up with that simile. Whereas I would have just gone, which was ever the best, sounding simile and been on the next page. And as long as I was getting close to Dan Brown's sales, I would have been happy. So that's the, the price you pay. But at the same time, I like an easy life. That's so interesting because I think I'm like you. I mean, I'm obsessed with you, Russell. Literally within five minutes, you've quoted Madame Bovary. <laughs> That's my favourite novel, probably is still. It? One of the good things about being awful at French, but being a Francophile, is you have to read some of your favourite novelists in translation. And the benefit is you get a new translation every five years, which is now the current translation. What that means is it's translated more into whatever the 2022 vibe is. Mm -hmm. So whenever, I think it was that Sharp translated the last Adam Sharp novelist. So when that came out, it was like reading it afresh. But of course, the French speakers will say, we well, haven't really read it. But at the same time, I get a treat they don't get. I get it in English. The same with the Russian stuff. Not that there's the snobbery about Russian novels for some reason. If I said I've read Crime and Punishment, no one goes, in Russian. Another one of my favourite novelists, Zola, Teresa Rakan. Everyone's like, did you read it in French? No, I didn't. I read it in Penguin Classic in English. Then I watched EastEnders. Do you relate at all to Emma Bovary, who has a very romanticised view of the world and who wants to escape where she is in life? <laughs> 
It's funny you should say that because it's not even a cliche. It's hackneyed beyond any usefulness at all to say that it's you that changes, not the book when you reread every 10 years. But I would say initially when I was a sort of masturbating virgin 16-year-old, I identified with the poor doctor sort of trying, just trying to get laid by a woman he's in love with and just being deceived and being this sort of pathetic character on the sideline living a pedestrian suburban lifestyle. For years, I was like that poor doctor, but I was fascinated by Emma and fancied her. Now, when I read it, of course, I feel more like, oh my God, am I more like her? So at one stage, I felt more like Leon, you know, the hot guy she was banging. Yes. I was like, I want to be him. I started to try and identify with like the cad when I was in my single period. So it's really weird. Huh. It changes. That's the brilliance of Flaubert, though. You dive in and out of each character. Do you think, so this is related to another quote I read of yours, which I'll read out now. There are not many things in life that would stop me climbing on stage. I went on the day after my dad's funeral. I've been on with food poisoning with a bucket at the side of the stage. <laughs> if you give yourself to something totally, then it becomes you. Do you think you're addicted to going on stage? Yes. And more than that, I can draw the analogy even more sharply. I think we're roughly the same age. We're both in our very late 30s. And, um, I mean, I'm 43. That's very kind that, of you. <laughs> that's yeah. what I call That is the colloquial term for very... I, I call it. myself 3017. So I'm 3017 soon. <laughs> and uh, why not? The French Canadians and French counting weird. I'll draw the energy more sharply. So anyone who was subjected to the heroin adverts of the 1980s have grown up with almost like a phobia of any sort of addiction or needle yes. or drugs and also a sort of rampant addiction to condoms as well. I spent my teenage years wrapped in a condom, scared of needles, <laughs> thinking I was going to get AIDS if I blinked at the wrong person. I'm, again, a very unusual stand-up for you to invite on. I would love to give you the story of, I used to watch stand-up when I was little and I knew one day I would break out the council estate and it's what I was destined to do and I found a way, if only. I accidentally fell into it in the most mundane, it was a dare from work way. Mm. Yes, I was born to do it. No doubt about it. But if you come from my background and no one exposes you to these different artistic things, you just never, like I probably should have done dancing as well. I'm double jointed. I was never taken to dancing by my alpha male silverback dad. So I got all the way to my mid-20s without ever having watched stand-up let alone dreamt of doing it. So this dare came about because I was now amongst middle-class people telling me I was funny and you should try it, you know, have you heard of alternative comedy and all that? So I went on stage. I had a great job at this point. I loved my life. I'd clawed out of the estate. I got my first in English. I've got the dream job, hummus in the fridge, pedigree cats, Clapham apartment. I'd made it. I'd tunneled Shawshank-like out of working classness through a tunnel behind a Flaubert poster. And here I am. And I do this bloody stand-up gig for no money on a Wednesday. And it was exactly like that heroin advert. The first time you do it, you'll be sick and you won't enjoy it. But you'll come back for more and your life will fall apart. I vomited my guts up. I lost half a stone in the first year of stand-up through nerves, through, through diarrhoea and sickness. And within six to 12 months, my performance at work slipped. My relationship with my girlfriend, who I owned a house with, crumbled. I lost weight. I neglected my diet. I neglected my friends. I neglected my family. I became a junkie addicted to the hit of feeling people laugh at what I was saying, strangers. I couldn't believe it was a thing. There is no ecstasy pill on the whole of Ibiza that could do what that did. And within three years, my career was gone and I was taking a gamble on this luck. Wow. So what was lockdown like for you? It was great for me. But you didn't get that hit. You couldn't get on stage. 
So what had happened was two years before lockdown, I've been doing this program with a YouTuber who'd said to me, how comes your lot, meaning analog stand-ups who make their money from presenting things on stage or once on TV specials and getting paid, why don't you ever put your stuff for free online, Spotify style? And I was like, it doesn't work like that. I mean, we hone our stuff, we make sure it's funny. And then we, you know, we go on Live at the Apollo for an astronomical fee or we go on tour for even, and we give it to our audience. Went, yeah, yeah, but bruv, you don't understand. Topical stuff you won't be able to do on TV after a week. And the stuff that you throw away because it's not good enough, that is good enough for YouTube. You went, just try it. This kid was 18. So I went back and I tried it. I literally put a light up, stood up, not sat down being funny in a chair and performed as though to camera with a ring light with an imagined audience. It turned out when Facebook called me in for a meeting one year later to discuss what happened, that no other stand-up on planet Earth, not exaggerating, had ever thought to do that. Plenty are like, here I am being ironic in a chair with my kids. But no one had gone, right, Boris Johnson, and spoken, you could argue, desperately and needily, mm. almost looking like you can't get on TV enough, E, if, to coin an adjective. But I took a gamble. And of course, I built this thing called the caning. I looked like a nutter with beans in the basement I would never use because I wasn't getting paid for these things. It was just a way of being funny when I wasn't on stage. And of course, the pandemic hit and I was the prepper with the beans. The day after lockdown, my first three minute rant, I knew when to pause, how to time it, how to light it, when to drop it, how to interact with the comments underneath. I was primed like one of those weirdos you see in the forest with spikes and rabbit skins. So I was good from the day after. And I got that hit from the liveness of the videos. So you must have been one of the only people as well who owned a ring light before the pandemic. So kudos to you for that. (laughs) Um, I would love to get onto your failures straight away because they are such good ones. And I can tell how much thought and given what we were talking about earlier, how much truth has gone into them, for which I thank you. Your first failure is your failure to relax. And you cite a specific moment while on a tea break when you were 19. Tell us about that. Yes. So it's, I think we need like a a positive version of a nervous breakdown, which is like a nervous break. Through. Break up is also, yeah, a nervous breakthrough. That's it. Thank you. You need a proper writer to solve these (laughs) issues. I've been, I've been feeling for that for years. There you go. Because you can't say nervous break up. So what I mean by that is, and I do work in mental health areas, I'm not trying to invalidate what people are going through, is my moment where something snapped in my head led to mostly positive outcomes apart from this inability to relax. And it was in a moment, it was like a snapping, and it's analogous to all the horrific stories I hear about people stopping in the high street, their minds unravelling and then having to go to hospital or get sectioned, but I went the other way. So the background is, there's no violin to be had here, yes... I started life, mother and baby shelter was the first official home. My dad visited at night while we were waiting to be housed. We didn't have a a council house. So my mum was living in like to the side of my great nan in a one room. It wasn't suitable. I was born. So my mum took the decision to move into a shelter to get us a council house. So we weren't homeless, but we didn't have a home. My dad would work all day, visit at night. And then it took eight months. So I did literally, as Drake would say, start from the bottom. Now we're here. There was no like crushing poverty or scariness or any Ken Loach images. So we went from that to a council flat to council house. So no violins, food on the table, always had school books, school uniform was fine. That said, I was the victim of the first generation where they got rid of any chance to get out. The 11 plus was scrapped. Not that I agree with it, but you know what I mean. So I was that generation of whatever your mum and dad do and however middle class or working class you are, you are 99.9% going to be that. That is your social 
stratum and there's nothing you can do about it more or less unless something freak happens to you like me. So that's what happened. I bounced through school. Yeah, I got a couple of GCSEs, didn't really do my A-levels, just went there just to smoke things I shouldn't and found myself a sort of hunched over, bitter, angry shop boy selling watches on Bond Street to rich people, sometimes coming in, just graduated from Oxford with their mum to buy a Rolex and stuff, getting angrier and angrier. At the time, an author I'd never heard of, rather like some sort of Dostoevsky character who's building up to something horrific. Building, building. But at the weekend, I was free. We went raving. We went to these warehouse raves. I love house music. I love techno. I still do. Tragic. And then one day, through the smoke, emerged this girl about I must be six inches taller than me, the type of girl that gets stopped and scouted for modelling, as she, indeed she did all the time when we started dating. She handed me her phone number and we start dating. So now I'm the shop boy dating the posh model girl who's just started at uni. I'm 19, she's 18. And I was waking up in halls. We were going back to hers, but it was halls. And I was waking up. And before I went to my train station to wait for my half-seven train to be the angry Raskolnikov shop boy, she was like drifting across the lawn and there were friends like clutching Penguin Classics and sitting with their legs outstretched as the sun broke across the lawn at 10am or drinking cider at four because they didn't have another lecture. And I was like, what is the physical difference between me and them? Last time I checked, I'm a homo sapit. There is no difference other than the majority private school. I've been totally tricked. And this is the thought that dropped in on that tea break. I was kept a diary at the time. I went, I've been tricked. I've been played a hand by the accident of my birth. You could say the same for being female, for race, whatever your story is. I've just been born with it. It's not my fault. That is out of order. I'll never yeah. forget. I sort of tipped my tea down the sink, didn't finish it. It's such a strong image in my mind. I sat down with my this remaining tea break and made plans for that lunch break. And I was like, how can I get out of this hole with my four sort of GCSEs and nothing and get to where she is so I can sit around on the lawn poncing about and then and I knew I would overtake those kids when I got there I had a passion for reading that I'd never tapped into still didn't know my difference between Jane Austen and Oscar Wilde at this point I still thought the importance of being earnest was written by Jane Austen I'm 20 nearly at this point you know you hear these working class kids who started reading Dickens at 10 I hadn't started reading at 90 I was so embarrassed and ashamed and it all came out in a gush and that lunchtime, I called something called the National Extensions College, who this week, I can exclusively announce, I've just started a scholarship foundation for, oh, Russell, for people in my position all these years later. And I said, help me. They're there for people like me. So they sent me, it was just as the internet was starting, although, of course, I didn't have the internet. I was living by now in my nan's housing association flat in a single bedroom with my clothes stuck to the wall on floating hooks because I didn't have a wardrobe. They said, we'll send you an A-level. It's in a box. You work your way through that box. You call your tutor remotely. You send your essays off. You sit that A-level remotely. And as soon as you're 21, we'll speak to the university and you'll be able to get in on one A-level because you're considered mature. What a joke. And that is exactly what happened. I got the fastest and highest A-grade in sociology that they'd recorded. I won an award, which was handed to me by Betty Boothroyd. The photo's still on my mum's side. I went to uni and she was right within... I think within a semester and a half, 
I'd overtaken everyone. And I would wake up at six. I would read the books I hadn't read for two hours before I read the books I was supposed to read for my course, A through to Z, Austin through to Zola, and back again, Martin Amis or Kingsley I started with, and then through again to whoever, Evelyn War. And over that three years, I caught everyone up. And then eventually I was the only one to get a first. I'm not wow. saying that to show off. I'm saying it to show what a mental, crazy, steroid-injecting thing that is to do. And, and you mentioned your mum there. Where is your dad in all of this? So what had happened was me and my dad had had this bad argument when I was 19. He wouldn't let me bring a girl into the house. I feel bad talking about it because it makes my dad sound awful. And he was a good dad. He was loving and protected and he worked himself to death providing for us. But ultimately, he wouldn't let this girl in the house because her ex was black. That's why she wasn't allowed in. She was white, but she had dated a black guy before. At the time, she thought she was pregnant. She turned out not to be. And I confided in my mum who confided in my dad. And that was it. He banned her from the house. And as the raging lefty, as virtually communist as all 20-year-olds become, it was just a step too far for me. So I just moved in with my nan. I couldn't have that. But the point of the failure is that weird, whatever's happened, that nervous breakthrough, I've not been able to switch it off. Mm -hmm. It's happened today. It's, it's happened, it'll happen tomorrow. It happens with every bloody TV show I do, whether it's Mastermind or, or whether I'm doing a daytime TV tomorrow. I'm the only one, for example, on Steph's packed lunch who produces every sentence of his silly script thing that does at 1pm that no one cares about. You know, so I can't switch it off. And that is a failure because it's done now. I'm safe. You know, I'm in the air. Enjoy the flight. Like, no, what if I had a bigger wing or the best wing or a faster wing than everyone else? I can't switch it off. Do you think that that is an extreme version of imposter syndrome that you still have? I suppose I have a bit of it sometimes. It more comes out in extreme gratitude where I can't believe how happy I am and I'll fill up. I wouldn't say imposter. It's a genuine inability to turn off this. It's like someone's lit a firework that cannot be unlit. The craziest thing I did, you'll be fascinated by this as a writer, was I got to uni with all of this plan in place. I'd saved up from my watches so I wouldn't have to work during the holidays so that I could pre-read the texts and hit the semester in September ahead of everyone else. And I didn't have to work while I was at uni. We had a massive problem as soon as I got to uni. I'll never forget it. The first book that I was reading, Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, I decided that every time I encountered a word I didn't know before, and the first word was impudent, how ironic, I was going to write it down on an index card. And then, of course, this is before I had the internet. I didn't know if it was it impudent, impudent. What were the cognates? Impudently, impudence. So I wrote down all the cognates with the diacritic marks on a card. And I learnt manually the English vocabulary I should have had. I carried these cards everywhere with me, like a weirdo on the toilet when I was walking. And I was only allowed to discard them when the word occurred to me naturally in my mind or in conversation. And it wasn't coming out in a sort of artificial show-off way. I had three and a half thousand of these and I burnt them. I was so ashamed of them. I burnt them when I was about 28. My heart is breaking for 20-something Russell. I mean, it's also uplifted because what an extraordinary story of drive and yeah. almost like you were learning this language, but you were also learning your own worth. And I think that's such a profound and meaningful thing for people to hear but if you still fail to switch that off, do you get any sleep? It must be quite difficult for your wife. 
Yes. So as I said, in lockdown, we were actually fine because I found there was more things I could get my teeth into. And I love writing as well. I'm a aspirant novelist as You're well. You're not aspirant. You are a novelist. I know. I, yeah. <laughs> I tried to pretend that one. That's another one that should have maybe not have got published. I've written four or five now that haven't that I've not even sent off some of them. And I love writing and I was working on some nonfiction just before, so I had the edits on that to do. So there's always plenty of ways to get the energy out. And I suppose the other nervous breakthrough happened in about my third gig when I got on, I was already like a very high energy person, like I'm speaking now, quite sort of intense. That's just my personality, always cracking jokes normally. But something happened on the third gig where this sort of manic, writhing, sweaty Lee Evans performance broke further through. Like, what do you mean there's another layer of nutter? And that, when I do that for 90 minutes, three nights a week, trust me, that finally removes the sting from the bee's bum and I have mm. to sleep and, and recharge. I'm a bee sting comedian. I can't do two gigs in a night. It doesn't matter whether the gig is 30 minutes or 90. Once I've deployed that sting, I go into sort of a cryogenic sleep at about one in the morning for eight hours, no problem. You mentioned there that you've been working on non-fiction. Was that Son of a Silverback? Yes, it was, yes. So this was your memoir, Son of a Silverback, growing up in the shadow of an alpha male, which was about your dad. One of the things that I was wondering is he was such a big presence in your life and is such a presence in your comedy. What it was like for you writing that memoir and revisiting what must have been some pretty dark emotional times. How did you feel after it? It's so tempting to agree with you, but the reality is I don't think I experienced them as dark emotional times. I can't look back and find a single memory of me cowering going, why does my dad constantly invalidate me and is negative? Oh, I'm crying in my bedroom. It's only afterwards when I've got into my 20s, I'm like, that's quite like weird and intense the way my dad was. But because of my nature, it didn't affect me on the surface at the time, at least. I can't find any, oh, I'm cowering upstairs, I'm so scared of my daddy memories. He was an imposing character, as he, he was fond of saying, I've never hit you, boy. And I'd say, no, you've never, I've never laid a finger on you, have I? No, as though it was an achievement, father of the year. And then he would ruin it by going, that's because if I started, I wouldn't fucking stop. So it's a lovely image of <laughs> physical abuse that would start and never cease until I was a pulp. So I was never scared of him. You were never scared of him? Not in fear, in fear. Sorry, I was never in fear of him. He was a man that barely needed to raise his voice. I'll never forget on one occasion I'd gone over the top and thrown my brother off the bed and he'd landed really badly on his shoulder. And my dad came thumping up the stairs. I must have been nine and just a tiny bit of wee came out. Like I just, I just urinated myself just a bit. That was the authority of the man who never hit nor raised his voice. I don't know how you have that authority. I suppose a stand-up has it to a certain extent. Maybe that's where I've learnt it. I mean, I don't physically abuse my audience. I don't really shout at them. And yet I very, very rarely get heckled. So maybe he taught me that. What I'm trying to say in a long-winded way is the book came out funny because I'm presenting these stories of this knuckle-dragging, shaven-headed Neanderthal, meat-eating, 16-stone steroid-injecting, nunchuck manufacturing illegally throwback. And it comes out funny because there's a sort of release from reading about this male archetype that we all know. In fact, we're working together to try and defeat that sort of masculinity. I'm just wondering now, because I said in the introduction that your dad was bullying and aggressive. Do you agree with those terms? Yes, on reflection. Okay. On reflection, but I didn't experience it at the time. Yes. 
that disconnect must be quite difficult to get your head around. I'm constantly being told by myriad therapists that I need to get in touch with my inner child. And it sort of frustrates me because I'm like, she's me. I don't know. I have a real resistance to that. Do you? So it's interesting because, and we definitely will come on to talk about this in one of the other failures, but I've actually been back to my inner child in a therapeutic way, which we'll come on to. And I think there's a difference between what you experience as a child and when the bruising or when the effects of it come out. So it's, sometimes it's not helpful to go back to your inner child if your inner child was totally resilient and had no issues at the time with what happening to them. My stuff came out in my 20s. So just constantly hearing from my dad, as soon as we left for holiday, right, the traffic's probably going to be shit. We'll probably miss the flight. The hotel will be shit. I imagine I'll get food poisoning. Look at that. What a rip off. What a waste of time. Why do I waste my time? My life's shit. No matter how hard I try, I fucking hate my life. When my dad died... We had to clear his little shed out, his little shed, his big workshop at the bottom of the garden, former council house that we bought. Thanks, Thatcher. I have to put a hashtag on. I found his diary and I was like, what? Dave Kane keeps a diary. I thought he was just into like meat, metal and weights. And the diary was one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever flicked through. Every page was a maximum of five words, sometimes one. Rain, shit at work. James, that's my brother. He was ill at the time. James, bad. Shit, week. Crap job. Rain, crap, nice dinner, shit life. It was just two words here and there. Like the diary of someone who couldn't really read or write, which my dad could read or write perfectly well. It was disturbing. And I suppose that's what was drip fed into me. Yes, Mm. I've been tempered in the opposite direction, just like a piece of metal might be, but I've still been tempered. And that voice is in there. Will be shit, it will go wrong, it might go wrong. And I've realised that and did something about it. That brings us on to your second failure, which is your 20s and your failure to fix a fundamental issue. Tell us about that, Russell. Right. So I've not really spoken about this before, which makes me a bit of a hypocrite because I do so much work in this area. I've never been medicated. I've never been diagnosed with depression. I've never had any issues. But as I got into my sort of mid to late teens, as well as becoming increasingly funny amongst my group in a sort of abnormal way, I was able to sort of hold court. And as well as, unfortunately, my generation was the rave scene, probably smoking and eating things I shouldn't have, uh, parties. So who knows? It's chicken and egg. But I started to get this issue with, say like I couldn't find my keys or if something had gone wrong. And we all lose our temper. We all slam doors or put a mug down too hard or something like that. But it got way past that. Never with people, never in front of people, really, except the poor girlfriends I was trying to date was in front of them. I saw just a childish toddler type temper. I wasn't able to control that boiling over. And it would manifest itself in the beginning with things I cared about being broken, like a laptop or something. Now, this is mostly men, but loads of women will slam a car door and or punch a wall now and again if they're having a really bad day or throw a plate of dinner across the... I'm not trying to make out this is a big dramatic illness or anything, but it kept building and it kept getting worse. Then I think I was just trying to find a safe way for the temper to get out. I discovered that if, say, I hit a wall or hit a book, I'm drowning in hardbacks, some of my poor books, and if it hurt as I hit the book, that quickly got rid of the temper. And that was the unfortunate link that was made between me being injured and me gaining control of whatever was going on inside. And you can imagine what happened from there on in. And the slightly unusual thing is, A, 
It's very unusual amongst straight males to this behavior beyond the age of 14. So I'm sort of ramping up at 14, 15, 16. By the time we get to 21, 22, it really is quite problematic because these are the times where you're drinking way too much, you know, going beyond your limit. And then if you had a drunk argument with your boyfriend or girlfriend at the time, a stomp off to me would become a let's walk into this window and see what happens type thing. Crazy behavior. Lucky enough, the window didn't break. I have got up my arms scars, which up till very recently I had lots of cover stories for about being a an enthusiastic pet owner. I can't explain it to you, Elizabeth. All I, the, the only way I can explain it to you Every single person has slammed a door in a temper. I'm assuming you have. Yeah. Imagine if that slam is not enough and you want to go back and just keep slamming it till the handle comes off because you've split up with your boyfriend or you've discovered someone's cheating or you, you pound on a wall until plaster comes out. Everyone's done that. I've just unfortunately taken it to that next level. I was needing to see blood before I felt better. Russell. And it, I, yeah. I, <laughs> that plagued my 20s, I'm afraid. I can literally feel your emotion and I... First of all, I feel so honoured that you have spoken about that. Thank you. And I know it will help so many people. And secondly, again, I just feel so sad and wretched for the person that you were. <laughs> because I'm in... It, no was, it was infrequent. I don't want to overstate it was infrequent, but do you know what? I've never heard anyone else speak. I don't know no. anyone else that's got self-harming by way of controlling a temper they were scared of. I've, ne I've never heard of it. I know there are plenty of blokes that have had their arms sling, punched a wall at the weekend, got carried away. So I suppose it is a, a sort of working class, frustrated masculinity thing. But to do it as a sort of practice. Yeah. It was just a matter of time till there was an incident that led to the change, which is what happened. So before we get onto that, again, as you say, hardly anyone talks about this. And so I'm by no means treading on ground that I know anything about. So I'm slightly cautious when I ask this question. Because is there part of you that was seeking to turn your anger inwards or that blamed yourself for feeling angry? Well, no, no, I think it made that worse. I think it came after. So I would look at the arm with the hole in. I'm looking at one now right on the wrist. That was dodgy that. I hit the metal shutter of a shop front and hit my wrist. That could have cut my wrist open. And I probably would have enjoyed the drama of that. I think when I looked at that, it led to more of those feelings you're describing. Oh, what a loser. I've just injured myself. I can't control it. It was a mechanical feeling of enjoying hurting myself to express the fullness of the frustration. It's the only way I can explain it to you. Mm. Even all these years past, anything like that happening to me, since 2009, 2010, since I've had, I don't want to use the word episode, but it, like I've, since I've done that behaviour, no, I don't think so. I think that's what it was. Looking into the science of it, it's very common amongst working class boys, normally ones that don't have dads, but maybe having too much of a dad can do it, that have not learned to, it's called regulation. It's part of the brain that regulates how far a temper or an emotion or a swear word, if you can't stop yourself swearing and stuff. And if that part is not trained or doesn't develop properly, it can lead to, ultimate expression would be Tourette's, but it can lead to other versions of it like this, a sort of compulsive or irrational rather than compulsive behaviour to hurt oneself. I think I was scared of what I would do if I didn't do that. What, what could I do? Would I drive a car into a wall? Would I hurt someone else? It was never on my mind. I never felt aggression towards someone else. I don't know what it was. What happened that you were able to confront this and how did you process it? 
Well, of course, now I've gone and started in 2004 whilst working. So I'm stand-ups. I'm working all day at an advertising agency, which for anyone doesn't know, that is all-consuming anyway. You don't have birthdays. You don't have weekends. You already don't have a life. And I was driving like four hours to do an unpaid 20-minute set in Manchester at night, like crazy stuff. So I was going way out of what I should be doing for my own physical and mental health. So these incidents were ramping up. Then... I'll start winning these competitions, a lot of them, and the big agents. I win basically every competition I enter, the baby ones. And then agents, like, you need to do Edinburgh. You could start winning the big prizes up there. And for anyone that doesn't know, the Edinburgh Festival, which I literally thought was just ballet and art before, at the age of 27, I still thought it was ballet and art. That's how ignorant I was about stand-up. The Fringe does this massive prize. It's called the Edinburgh Comedy Award or the Perrier Award. If you're a bit older, you might know it as that. And that is the one to go for. To me, it's bigger than BAFTA. It's bigger than anything if you're a passionate stand-up. But the pressure and the Dad Dave-like figures, the posh versions, staring over you, Guardian, Telegraph, Times, when you're up there, all men, all powerful men who want to be negative about you, I suppose it's just very triggering. And I was having more of these incidents, basically, and my, my partner at the time spoke... Lord lover, it must have been horrible for her, trying to understand why she's with a grown-ass man in his almost late 20s now behaving like this and I just got in from a preview I was exhausted we were eating a Chinese takeaway watching something and Decky on the TV unwinding I'll never forget this I can't remember what our argument was about something inconsequential but the argument went where she shouted I shouted and then it went the temple went like the Hulk anyone who's watching Incredible Hulk the shirt rips the face has gone green and without thinking, it wasn't like, right, I'm going to go and uh, do this. I don't really remember thinking of it. It's funny, really. And it will be stand up one day when I'm ready. So feel free to laugh, listener, please, because I do. I've headbutted my Chinese takeaway food, headbutted my plate in front of me. So I've gone down like a sort of comedy face falling into plate. The plate's cracked in half. And unfortunately, the angle of it has cut right into my head. And it's quite dramatic if you cut your head, this sort of like sort of slapstick blood jetting across the room. I've sat down against the wall, not knowing what I've done to myself, thinking, oh, Christ, I've done it. Cracked my head open. And as I've sat down, the blood and all the has gone into my eye. And I'm like, I blinded myself, uh, thought I had. And I'm picking this stuff out, which I thought was skull. And it was actually... You are allowed to smile. There's special fried rice. I was picking special fried rice out of my eye, thinking it was fragments of skull. Oh, my gosh. So, of course, I've ended up in casualty. And I just said to her at the time, that is it. I've hospitalised myself for an afternoon. I've got stitches in my head. I lied to everyone. I had to fake that I'd passed out from exhaustion. I went to Edinburgh to try and win this comedy award, which I didn't win that year with stitches in my head and I'm really vain with my hair and I couldn't comb my hair. So I had to go on with this like matted scab for the first week, which fell off and then I had to stitch it. And I was like, that's enough. So while I was up there, I Googled something and I saw Goldie, the DJ, who's similar background to me, talking and he's like this little mean-faced DJ with gold teeth. It was like quite scary and I loved his music. He's now going around hugging everyone and smiling like he's taken like a Buddha pill. And he'd done this thing called the Hoffman process. And that's when I found out about it. I suppose the only thing unique about it is it combines residential therapy with group therapy, with talking. It's lots of different things that this guy called Bob Hoffman threw together. And to me, it was the thing that changed my life. I know someone who's done the Hoffman process. And mm. one of the things is you can't talk about it. It's really, no, like, no. and there's something that happens at the end that is like so mind blowing and no one can ever talk about it. But 
I absolutely believe in the power like it has from... to change your life. What can you tell us about it? So I can tell you about the mechanics of it, but you do have to, you'd sign a non-disclosure. The reason you sign it is not because it's some mysterious cult. It's because if you're listening to this and you think Hoffman might be for you, if I give you any detail, you lose the effect of that surprising detail hitting you during the process. So you would have a less effective process because I've spoiled it. Yeah. That's why it's non-disclosure. All I can say is there's physical elements to it. It was a bit American-y and was very uncomfortable for me, which is why it worked. And over the week, I would say they take you back to being about eight. I can't tell you how they do it or why you do it. All I can say is the food's amazing. It's in a beautiful location. <laughs> but you have to get out your they phone, don't you? It's not just that. Your phone obviously taken off you. And that's the thing with regular therapy. I've never been to, for regular therapy or counselling, so I'm, I'm speaking blind here, but nearly everyone I know has. Is you walk out and you're on your fa- you're back into mm. the toxic soup within 20 seconds yeah. of getting on the London Underground or whatever. So this is eight days and eight nights of the most intense stuff. You're not allowed to, and these are the rules, you're not allowed to be on your phone, you're not allowed to masturbate or have any sort of sexual release. You're allowed to wash, but you're not allowed to do exercise. You're not allowed to massage each other. Nothing at all. No reading, just thinking or conversing with the other people. Even how the meals are done will be different to what you've experienced. And all I can say is there's a few weird days of integration at the end where you're very annoying and want to hug everyone. You've got had like a personality transplant and you're a bit of a wanker. But after about a week, it reintegrates with who you were before and you've got faults and bits go wrong here and there. But touch wood... Since that day in 2009, September, I have never, ever had an incident of what I described to you ever again. Do I slam doors? Have I smashed a phone screen after a bad phone call? Of course, I'm a human being. Don't want to lose that. But I've never done that weird stuff ever, ever again. That's how good it is. Yes, it's bloody expensive. It's like maybe, I don't know, four and a half grand, five grand for eight days. I don't know what the price is now. But if you add up what you would spend talking to a counsellor at 65 to 100 quid an hour, it pays for itself because I've never needed one since. Amazing. Russell, thank you. That's all I want to say about that. Just thank you so, so much for trusting me and this podcast with that. It was really, really a privilege to listen to. We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before, but what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. 
It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Your final failure is, as you put it, the false streak. <laughs> so start with your hair. Oh, this is a career failure. I've, I would say I've only just finished paying back the debt from that loan I took out on my reputation about two years ago. That was almost Austinian in balance. That I know. Wait, now I need to understand. <laughs> I need to get my head around it. Like all the great sentences that pack such a punch that I've, I understand it on one level, but I need to like dig into the lower levels. It was so false. It was like I'd taken out a loan on my true personality and that falseness yes. must be paid back. And I've only just made the last payment, Elizabeth. Wait, and was I'm that now an he... eligible bachelor and ready for marriage with oh, Sorry. <laughs> It's a truth universally acknowledged that falsity must be part of one's character. So wait, what's the loan? The loan you've taken out? The loan I took out was the falseness, the pretending and fakeness, thinking I could get away with it. You see, you've borrowed against your authenticity. Wow, that's so fucking profound, Russell. Which you can get away with in most professions. Why not? I mean, I love If Ian McEwan turned up with a complete personality transplant to present his next novel, we would all think this novel is going to be bloody amazing. He's gone mental. <laughs> if Tracy Emin suddenly was the hot new thing again because she'd completely vault fast and changed who she was, you need to come straight down to the Kent coast to see what I've installed. We'd be like, oh my God, she's so relevant. They're artistic ones, let alone if you were a firefighter or, or a lawyer, as long as you're nailing the job, which I was in my stand-up. I was winning every award you could win Still, I was nailing every TV performance you could be on. But the difference between stand-up comedy, and you can probably think of some other professions, maybe teaching or nursing or doctoring, is how your personality is, is wedded to how the art or the thing is received and processed to the point where it calls into question the very thing itself. Yes. And without getting too heavy and bringing in literary theory and everything. But I think Barthes was on the money when... The author is important, obviously. You're important, Elizabeth. But when you read The Party, in a 100 years, as I hope we will, it won't matter whether you're alive or dead or whether you shaved your head and went to live in Thailand on a retreat when you were 60. None of that will matter. The book will stand. Whereas if I shave my head and live on a retreat and then do a stand-up show, that matters. This is what I'm saying. What's yes. going on in your inner personality in some art forms? And of all people, Andrew Motion argued with me that poetry is the same. He wouldn't have it that poetry is immune to this as well because he said the poem is actually inside the person. So it was a problem when fame hit and I wasn't able to handle it and I made a few wankerish changes. That's the very intellectual, okay. long-winded answer for why the streak was an issue. Okay, so the streak in your hair is a metaphor for this whole thing. Correct. What happened was I only gone and won that fucking prize. That I, are we allowed to swear? Yes, absolutely. I've only gone and won that flipping prize that I've been chasing. I win this Edinburgh Comedy Award. In 2010? In 2010. Me. I, I've never watched stand-up in my life. I'd fallen into this. I've, I've not got like down on myself. I'm a bright chap. But to actually be one of the persons that wins the thing in your business, it's just, it's not about uh, imposter. It's about being humble and realising how amazing that is. Not only that, but I then get on a plane and do that same show in Australia and become the first stand-up in history on earth to bag the Barry Award, which is the one on the other side of the globe, for the same show. It must also feel 
for the first time, potentially, that you are being seen and celebrated for all of these things that you have striven so hard for. And that must be terrifying, being seen. So do you think the falsity is also, there has to be an element of disguise for you to cope because you're not used to that? Mm, again, no. <laughs> the, old me, the old me would have said yes, because it sounds really nice and makes me sound like a great person. The real answer is I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I was the junkie that wanted the hit. I was getting bigger audiences. It, I was I had my own TV show. I had two shows on BBC Three. It was great. What it is, to give myself an easy ride, if you come from somewhere, so whether you come from a background of colour or a single mother or you are a woman or you're like me, a working class male, and you feel spent your life being conditioned to prepare to be invisible, prepare to not be heard, prepare to not be looked at, prepare to work in a shop. And all of a sudden, a significant amount of people give a toss about what you're saying. Sometimes you can't handle it and it goes to your head. You've only got to look at rappers and what happens to a rapper once they get famous. It's just like showing off in grown-ass men in their 40s with like gold chains saying, look at me dragging on the ground because they can't believe their wealth and fame and want everyone to look at it. Well, that's what happened to me. But the difference is because I'm not a rapper, I don't get a free pass. I'm a truth peddler on stage. The first thing that happened was I realised everyone took me for much younger than my age and still does. Turns out I've got this collagen imbalance, which is why I don't wrinkle at a normal rate. I know all women now hate me. Is that true? It's true. So I'm actually, I'm nearly, I'm nearly, I'm nearly nearly 47, I'm 47 in August and I very, very, very rarely get a guess older than 33, 34 people that have met me. Very rarely. So it's not vanity, that's just what people guess. I cottoned on to this and thought, right, first thing I'm going to do is knock five years off my age. I just thought that was a normal showbiz thing to do. Didn't realise it was going to be a big deal. I wasn't like lying, like Ted Bundy concealing bodies under a house. I just knocked five years off my age. Didn't realise what a massive issue that was going to be for all the dick-swinging alpha male stand-ups. The next thing I did was, what, everyone's looking at me. I'm going to express myself and dress outrageously and be a bit like Noel Fielding or a bit like, you know, some of the rock stars. I'm going to wear tight trousers. I'm going to wear eyeliner and show off and be like a rock star, man. Why wouldn't I? Elizabeth, that is as far as my thinking went. Why wouldn't I enjoy fun clothes, eye makeup and behaving like a rock star? No one else gets to be. And that is exactly what I did. I put a streak in my hair. I knocked five years off my age and I wore eyeliner. I would say it took about a year before I realised I'd drilled through one of the main power lines into the mansion of my career and Mm. that the electricity and liquid was slowly draining into the basement. Because what was happening was one of the worst things that can happen in our realm of fame. I was getting more famous, but the theatre sizes were not increasing. They weren't dwindling but they weren't increasing. I was stuck at the 500 seater. I'm like, hey, I'm on TV to a million people on ITV too. I'm doing this. What's going on? The newspapers ran a story about me lying about my age. No one cared, including me. In fact, I wrote a show about it called Right Man, Wrong Age and toured it and then just became my real age. And then thankfully, I won't say their name because I don't have permission, but a very, very famous stand-up comic took me aside and explained what was happening. And that was that my stand-up act is all about my dad, my nan. It's very funny. It's very real. Even when I'm talking about COVID, it's from the heart. The audience at the end of the current show often cry at the end. 
and yet they laugh. I've had complaints. I had a guy who had to take his angina medicine in my show. That's how funny it is, but it's real. It comes from the heart. And if you see someone going, my dad, my nan, I started life in a mother and baby shower, but they're lying about their age Mm -hmm. and they're putting on fake-ass makeup and looking like someone who they didn't look like a year ago, that's someone who's false, an attention seeker. And the type of person who I would make fun of for being on Instagram doing a pouting selfie, which I still do. I'm still in recovery from being a wanker. So (laughs) that chat coincided with me falling in love with Lindsay, my now wife, and this is 2012, 2013, and she went, you're a good-looking lad. Please stop dressing like a prick. You don't need to do it, babe. You're such a good-looking lad. And then I changed management. That My management weren't bad. Shout out to my first management and thank you for everything. But I went with a manager who was much more comfortable with telling me, don't wear that, don't do that. That job might be 60 grand. You're not doing it. It'll make you look like a dick. I wanted a no person a no person who will say no to me every day and tell me. And now to this day, if we were filming this in person today and come into a studio, I would have texted Danny and said, what shall I wear? I still would have asked that. Should I wear a suit with a T-shirt? And I just got a good woman or a good man. It doesn't make any difference. I happen to be straight. Who said to me, wear this. I love you. Trust me. And from there it just it took off god russell what are you doing you're making me cry why are you making me cry when you're talking about clothes (laughs) well you can see them online it was two years of i'm a slightly twirly and effeminate anyway on stage that's just the adrenaline that is not put on that is all me i've been like it since i was a kid i love dancing i love dancing like a woman it's just my style can't help it but that mixed with the makeup and everything i think it was just a turn off to some of the let's not dress this up men that I was connecting with men were enjoying listening to me but they were put off by it but also you know I know you've quoted Flaubert and Dostoevsky I'm going to quote Simon Cowell which is that the public always knows they always know an audience can sniff out inauthenticity at several hundred paces and that's why I feel like I've had the greatest quote-unquote success although what does that really mean that's a whole other podcast in my life when I have been vulnerable and honest and myself. And that was such a revelation to me to take a gamble on being myself. And when you grow up mm-hmm. with a lack of self-worth, which I feel that you did yes, wrongly, yes. but you did, you can't really believe it. It feels like a trick almost. It feels like that's yep. the falsity. Like just being myself, are you kidding? <laughs> and yeah. then to discover that it, it's exactly that, what you say about having good people around you who are like, do you know what? I love you as you really are for all the good and all the bad. And there's such safety to be had in the peace of that love. And I'm so glad you have those people in your life now who can reassure you that your integrity is so much more than enough. Like that's what it's all about really, isn't it? Integrity. Absolutely. Even my daughter the other day, she's only six. I had my haircut. She went, it's too high at the front. It looks silly. And I immediately went upstairs and put some hairspray and put it flatter for the podcast I was doing because my hair tries to go up each week. It's still trying to climb attention-seekingly high. It's like, grow the fuck up. Comb it, put a suit on. But I'll tell you what's more complicated in my situation, Elizabeth, is I had that integrity and truth in how I was being. Yes. Mixed with a surface narcissistic fakeness to do with vanity with my age and styling. So if you look at the Live at the Apollo set I did maybe 2011-12, when I'm going through this phase, what I'm talking about on stage is self-esteem and dating and a breakup. I've been, it's all very honest. It's great stand-up, in my opinion, I would say that. But layered on top of it is like, mm. it was perceived as fake. 
even yeah, though it so wasn't, which is worse, which is worse because <laughs> I was being authentic. I was giving up right. that vulnerability. Yeah, it's almost like you're putting a screen in between you and the audience. I was just showing off. I just got carried away. I can't rationalise it more than, what about if I, I wore this? Oh, that'll look really cool like a rock star. I just didn't think it through. Because I'm doing all the things you're talking about, having the courage to be vulnerable, having the courage to be myself, having the courage to tell truth, and people are sitting in their chairs to listen to that, and then I'm letting off a confetti cannon while I'm talking about death. They're like, what are you doing? Those two things don't go together. What are you wearing now, Russell, if that's not too <laughs> lecturous well, a question? This is, the, <laughs> this is the beauty of an Elizabeth Day audio-only yes. meeting. I mean, I'm still in my gym clothes, white T-shirt, joggers and jeans. But yet again, the joggers were selected from the ASOS ultra skinny section. Why? <laughs> oh, get a light. It's time to drop down to skinny or slim fit. I know that. You know that. Especially because the 90s are coming back and it's all like baggy jeans now. So I'm trying. I'm really... Do you know the problem is? I think that's prejudice against people who aren't tall. If you're a taller woman or a taller man, the baggy leg look is so good because you can go yeah. like a high-waisted jean and have almost a culotte down there. But when I have a skinny jean, because it tapers at the ankle, it gives the illusion of leg I don't have. I'm 5'10", average UK height. But I like to walk like a six-footer. Well, listen, Russell, I think you should just wear whatever the fuck you want to wear. No, don't because... say that. It cost me a lot of money. <laughs> um, you are. I was so looking forward to this podcast because you were kind enough to invite me onto yours, Man Baggage. And I honestly, like, I love talking to you because so much intelligence and thought goes into every single thing that you say. And I'm very aware that this episode could be four times as long because I would never get tired of talking to you. I just think you've got unique and original insight. And I just can't thank you enough for that. How has coming on How to Fail felt for you? Well, I'm a bit proud of myself because there's three big podcasts I wanted to do. And I thought, I wonder if I'll ever get to do them. And I've managed to do all three of them in a year. So I feel like I'm obviously doing something right when I open myself up to being a bit more open than I would have been. And the truth is, I would rather have been doing a joke every five minutes just to make sure there's some funny content in there so people come to see me on tour. So that's been the slightly unusual thing is I've got my normal energy, but I've forced myself to just keep unloading from the basement stuff I've not unloaded for other people. So that's been a mixture of slightly unusual for me, but weirdly comfortable at the same time. Like it's something I should do more often because I feel like, I don't like the phrase white working class, but I feel like there's a lot of working class men, whatever colour you are, lads, that feel so trapped and they don't realise they've even got permission to speak because we've grown up with a masculinity where if we even show vulnerability, it's an issue. And you've only got to look at the statistics of male suicide, male steroid abuse is on the rise. Why? I don't even know a woman that likes a 17 stone man with 3% body fat who looks like he's going to poo himself if he turns his neck. It's the insecurity of being a working class man. So if more men like me, who sound a bit common, were are able to just open that cellar and unpack those things, maybe some of those problems would get fixed. So that's why it's important. I've, I've pushed myself to do this today. My story, although it feels unusual, I'd like to think is universal in some way. Russell Kane, thank you so much for coming on How to Fail. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.